taught by men who have sworn and vowed that they would be faithful to Scripture. This is what you're being taught. And that if you will listen carefully to Scripture, throw off the crustiness of the patriarchal culture that the biblical authors had to write in, and get in touch with the metrosexual androgynous spirit of God heading off into, in Christ, there's neither male nor female, that you will then be a more holy, a more sanctified, a more godly Christian. And particularly in your marriages. Get in touch with your female side. Okay? So... This is another reason why I will not worship God as Father because all that language of fatherhood comes out of an ancient patriarchal culture. But those of us, come on now, those of us who are in touch with, what? With where the Spirit of God is heading. Now, what, when somebody says that, what gives them the authority to say that? They don't have any. And that's why the voice gets loud. And that's why the hand goes up. Because they want to catch you up in the urgency of their vision, their philosophical presuppositions. You know, the Spirit of God. You know, and then they pull out of the text a verse that says, in Christ there's neither male nor female. And instead of using the text the way the context shows it should be used, namely, that we don't have in our church a lower class that's called women. We don't have a lower class that's called uneducated in this sophisticated Bloomington. Although those words aren't used there, but you get my point. We don't have a lower class that's black. We don't have a lower class that's American as opposed to British. <laughs> okay? We don't do that. All right? Brits and Americans are equal, Jeremy. Okay? Is that okay with you? Are you all right with that? Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> Americans don't believe it. But I'm glad you do. If I had a British accent, this church would be busting at the seams. <laughs> Alistair and all that. Stuart and all that. All right, I'm back. The whole point of in Christ there's neither male nor female is to show us that the Bible does not allow there to be distinctions of equality in the church anymore. Alright? Whether they're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Doesn't mean that it doesn't any longer matter whether you go to bed with a man or a woman. I mean, if the Spirit of God is really showing us in that text that sexual differentiation is done with, why do you bother choosing a woman to marry instead of a man, if you're a man? I mean, if we're really going to get in touch with the Spirit of God... And by the way, when I say the Spirit of God, I'm not meaning the Holy Spirit. I'm meaning the Spirit of this age, which cops a posture as being God. And that's why I'm making fun of it. All right? If really we're allowed to get rid of sexual differentiation and turn our backs on it, there's absolutely no reason why you can't do exactly what most people are doing today, which is decide where in the continuum you are, and if you're right in the center, you could have a man or a woman. It doesn't make any difference. If that's really what the Spirit of God is saying in Galatians 3, 
There's neither male nor female, and the more you're in touch with God and His trajectory, the more you'll leave sexual differentiation behind. Then why bother choosing a woman to marry if you're a man? You'll be fully enlightened, fully in touch with yourself if you're oblivious to such petty distinctions. Have a woman if you're a woman. Have a man if you're a man. And show that you're in touch with where the Spirit of God is headed. All right? In other words, come on, you guys. If Christians have given up teaching biblical manhood and womanhood, is it any surprise that people who want to marry the same sex say they ought to have marriage licenses and benefits and to adopt children? What is the pillar and foundation of the truth? It's the church. If the church is all caught up in metrosexuality and androgyny and speaking about gender instead of sexuality, don't you think that the culture is going to just simply dive into homosexuality? All right. Male imagery is a reflection of patriarchal culture and therefore not an essential part of our faith, not a highest expression of our faith, not according to Galatians 3, which says in Christ there's neither male nor female, not where the Spirit of God is headed, which will end in heaven where there is neither marrying nor the giving in marriage, as our Lord Jesus said. And of course, again, they're not being faithful to the text. It doesn't say that in heaven there won't be manhood and womanhood, sexuality. What it says is neither marriage nor the giving of marriage, but they shall be like the angels. Is any angel ever presented in Scripture as a woman? Now, I don't have time to go off into that, but here's my point. The Bible does not say at that text that in heaven there will be no sexual differentiation. What it says is neither marriage nor the giving in marriage, but they shall be like the angels. More specifically, when God is spoken of as Father, such naming of God is just an anthropomorphism, and anthropomorphisms are to be used as our discretion. If they're helpful, use them. If they're not helpful, don't. Now, what is an anthropomorphism? An anthropomorphism is a place where, let me read, it is a place where gods and goddesses are described as having human forms and possessing human characteristics. All right? That's what an anthropomorphism It can be other things than gods and goddesses, but most... Usually, when it's used, it is referred to as the describing of gods or goddesses as having human forms and possessing human characteristics. All right? So here we have, in referring to God as Father, we have an anthropomorphism. And anthropomorphisms are things that are used from our life helping us to understand a God who is transcendent. So if they're helpful, use them. If they're not helpful, don't use them. And fatherhood is no longer helpful. Calling God Father is intended to assist us in understanding His character. It's intended to show us that as a father, He has the power to create. He has the power to take the initiative in our salvation. He is providential, that He provides for us. That He is sovereign, that He is where the buck stops. That He is loving and kind that He disciplines us as a father disciplines his children, that He is just or fair, that He has authority. But in fact, calling God Father does not assist us in understanding His character because His creative power reminds me of my Father's destructive power. 
His initiative in our salvation reminds me that my father never protected or saved me from anything. His providence reminds me that my father never provided for his family, but hung around the house and lived and sponged off others, off his wife, off his neighbors, and finally off his children. His sovereignty does not help me because it reminds me that my father dictatorially used and abused his authority. His loving kindness has nothing in common with my father since my father never demonstrated kindness to anyone or anything, even the family dog. His discipline does not help me because it reminds me that my father used discipline to oppress and intimidate and to relieve his own temper. His justice reminds me that my father never was just, never fair. He only did what he wanted. And the calls to intimacy with God, to love God, to pray to God, to speak to God, does not help me because it only reminds me that my own father never desired any intimacy with anyone. In fact, he never even spoke with us. In other words, this anthropomorphism does more harm than good. Many people have had ineffective and evil fathers. And those with such fathers will find God language which utilizes the word father to be completely offensive. This is a term that is not helpful. Furthermore, I will not pray to God as father because goddess worship predates biblical revelation and it is superior to biblical revelation. Biblical revelation is man-centered. It's not in tune with the latest scholarship that shows the interrelatedness or the symbiotic nature of all creation. And the use of goddess language restores to our understanding the maternal and the sustaining role of the earth in our preservation. And it brings a sense of humility to man and causes him to take better care of the ecosystem and the planet we inhabit. The Da Vinci Code and all that. All right? People, do you see... There's absolutely no reason why you as an evangelical should continue to pray to God as Father. Do you understand this? We go through this and I give you reason after reason not to pray to God as Father anymore. And most of you here, every single one of these reasons you could get sucked into. And when they do Bible translation that throws out the word man, the word brothers, all these words of Scripture that are male marked words in the original Hebrew and Greek, they give you those things and they say to you, don't worry, we won't touch Father. This is the old compromise that Satan always pulls on his people, where he tells you that he'll let you have this if you'll just give him that. And this is always the way that Satan fights. He always promises safety here if you just make a little pact with him here. And so the Bible translations are saying to us today, don't worry, we're just messing with the language of Scripture about man. And it's because that language is in a patriarchal culture. Don't worry, we'll leave God as a father. But you know, that language about man was from a patriarchal culture and we've got to get rid of it because, you know, it's just an obstacle to us. And God is spirit. Those who worship is worshiping the spirit of truth. Look at the trajectory of Scripture. You see that the spirit of God is headed in another way. And we'll just touch the language of man. We won't touch the language of God. We won't change the fatherhood of God. We won't change the sonship of Jesus Christ. Just the language about man. Don't worry. This over here is safe. I guarantee it. All right? But what's the argument? The argument is all of the language of Scripture came out of an ancient patriarchal culture. Don't you see the rosy path you're being led down? 
If it all came out of an ancient patriarchal culture, and if we know God doesn't have sexuality, and if your father was nasty, why on earth would you continue to pray to him as father? What is there about God that requires us to be careful with the language about him, and we don't have to worry about the language of Scripture about man? I mean, come on, think about this. God isn't sexual. So if God isn't sexual, we should be more likely, more willing, more able to get rid of the language about God that says Father. Do you understand this? There's absolutely no reason for Bible translators to mess with the language of man and then all of a sudden to get principles with the language with God. Either every word of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit and you're supposed to be faithful to that word, or none of the words are, and there's no arbitrary point at which you can screw around with this over here, but not with this here. And so, we go through all these reasons about why people will not pray to God as Father. And this is where you and your children and your grandchildren will be. And you have to decide whether or not God's fatherhood is not an anthropomorphism, but a uh, theomorphism. In other words, whether it is that we know who God is as Father because we have had human fathers and therefore can begin to understand God, or whether we know what human fathers are because we have God as a Father and we take His fatherhood and we apply it on man and we judge man by God's fatherhood. You see, all of a sudden everything gets flip-flopped. If God is the archetypal Father then to give up referring to him and praying to him and loving him as a father is to give up all hope of human fatherhood. Because where's the template? Where's the mold? Where's the first impression? Where's the archetype? It's gone. It's dead. It was killed. And how was it killed? It was killed when the Word was removed. It was killed when you went in a mainline church and you heard them praying, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. Which is a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity because guess what? There's no person in that construction. All there is is ways of relating. It's modalism. God is no longer Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's a thing that creates, a thing that sustains, a thing that redeems. Do you understand? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of what? Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you, do words matter? Can I get up here and baptize in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sustainer? You go into mainline churches, that's what you'll have. What does Jesus say? Pray like what? Pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. Do you know that if you go into Scripture, David, I'm going to go to noon today. But I'll be back next week, I promise. Because I don't want to take another week for this sermon. Okay, you'll give me permission. <laughs> Thanks, dear brother. What does the Bible say, brothers and sisters? The Bible says that we are to pray to God, our Father, who art in heaven. Now, Donald Blesch 
records for us a new Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed begin, I believe in what? God, the Father Almighty. And this has been the confession of the church through 2,000 years. Well, here is the new creed made in the image of the Western world. I believe in God who created women and men in the image of God, who created the world and entrusted the care of the world to both sexes. Now, come on. When did the Apostles' Creed have that much to do with sexuality in the first statement? I mean, it's just all through there. It's obvious what's going on. I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. But no, this one, I believe in God who created women and men in the image of God, who created the world and entrusted the care of the world to both sexes. Well, we know what we're doing with, dealing with there. I believe in the totality of the Redeemer in whom there is no male nor female. For we are all one in redemption. I believe in the Holy Spirit who is the feminine aspect of God, who gave us life and shelters us like a mother bird. Now listen, how do I say this to you, brothers and sisters? If you are prepared to have women in authority in the home, in the church, if you are prepared to remove the male-marked language of Scripture in your Bible translations, you will be making this as your confession or your children will be. Okay, this is the spirit of the age, and you can't arbitrarily say where you'll go with the spirit of the age and where you won't. But let me remind you, the words of Scripture are inspired, not just the concepts. We believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. How do you decide which words of Scripture are an anthropomorphism and which aren't? If we agree that something is an anthropomorphism, how do we know we can use any other earthly term and communicate exactly what God intended by his use of the anthropomorphism? Scripture speaks of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in overwhelmingly masculine terms. Never in Scripture is God addressed as or named as mother. Never. Never. The Bible consistently avoids the use of feminine names, titles, pronouns, and even metaphors for God, while frequently referring to God with masculine terms such as Father. Father is used of God 21 times in the Old Testament and 225 times in the New Testament. The biblical texts never give God a feminine name or title, nor is a feminine pronoun ever used to refer to God. There is no unequivocal example of a feminine metaphor being applied directly to God. This, by the way, is the Anglican Archdiocese of Sydney that I'm reading from. Since the concept of female deities was readily available in the world of biblical writers, did you hear that? Since the concept of female deities was readily available in the world of biblical writers, it seems reasonable to conclude that they consciously avoid the direct application of feminine imagery to God. Even where God's activity is likened, for example, to that of a mother, he continues to be spoken of in masculine terms. The fatherhood of God is a theomorphism, not an anthropomorphism. It is a depiction or conception of human beings as having the form of a God. God. We do not know who God is by understanding what an earthly father is, but we know what an earthly father is because we know the Father God. In the fullest sense, therefore, says Jairus of Pelican in Jesus through the centuries, he says, in the fullest sense, only the Creator could be said to be. For the same reason, using the name Father for God is not a figure of speech. 
It was only because God was the father of the Logos son that the term father could also be applied to human parents. And when it was used of them, it was a figure of speech. (laughs) As the father of the Logos son, God was, according to the New Testament, the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And in human families, both the parents and the children are an imitation of divine prototypes. When we call Father, we don't suppose. This is Dorothy Sayers. When we call God, we don't Father. We do not suppose for one moment that God procreates children in the same manner as a human father. And we're quite aware that preachers who use the Father metaphor intend and expect no such perverse interpretation of their language. Nor, unless we are very stupid indeed, do we go on to deduce from the analogy that we are to imagine God as being cruel, careless, or injudicious father, such as we may see from time to time in daily life. Still less, by using this term father, are we stating that all the activities of a human father may be attributed to God, such as earning money for the support of his family or demanding the first use of the bathroom in the morning. And she's poking fun at the stupidity of people who think that God is limited by this use of the term Father. Donald Blesch says, when we speak of God as Father in the biblical sense, it should be borne in mind that this is not a mere symbol. Theologians of such diverse persuasions as Thomas Aquinas, Henricus Burkhoff, Karl Barth, and Tom Torrance are unanimous that when Father refers to God, especially in the context of devotion, the word is not figurative, but closer to being literal in that it is practically transparent to what it signifies. The same can be said about Jesus Christ when He is called Son and Lord. Yet this cannot be made to apply to the reference to Jesus as Good Shepherd or the True Vine. It is not that God resembles a father, but in calling him father, the Bible challenges the human view of what a father should be. And then John Calvin in his commentary on Colossians 1.16 says, It is customary, customary for God's names to be transferred to creatures insofar as he exerts his power in them. Thus he himself is alone Lord and Father, but they are also called fathers and lords whom he dignifies with this honor. This is a unanimous testament through church history. All believers have held that the language of sexuality when applied to our life is in some small sense bringing to us as men and women what God the Father has originally demonstrated in his own character and in his creation and in his sovereignty, in his discipline of us, in his long-suffering, in his calling into being... uh, all of this world and taking the initiative with his creation in him through his son being the bridegroom to the, ch- to the church, which is his bride. You look at all this language of scripture and this is the center of our faith. This is not something that you can take on or off at will. In the Bible, we are commanded, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. 
And when we look at this second commandment and we say, what does it command and what does it forbid? It commands that we worship God as He has revealed Himself to us. And when we refuse to use the language in the baptisms, to pray to Him as Jesus has commanded, to refer to Him as a Father, when we refuse to do this, we are violating the second command. We are idolaters. Prayer and worship done contrary to Scripture is contrary to the second commandment. Only God can name God. And those who refuse to acknowledge God as their Father have denied the faith and must be led back to faith with all soberness. A German mystic once wrote, God is none of the things you can name. He is more than wise, more than good. And it sounds good, doesn't it? He's none of the things you can name. Goethe in Goethe says, Call it blessed, call it art, call it love. I have no name to give it. I, I, I live in, in fear of uh, pronouncing words that uh, I've never, languages I've never studied. And I've never studied German, so forgive my pronunciation. But listen to both of these statements. God is none of the things you can name. Call it bliss, call it art, call it love. I have no name to give it. D.H. Lawrence wrote, O nameless one, hallowed be thy name. And it sounds seductive. Release God from these human trappings, from these anthropomorphisms. But we are not free to name God. He has named himself. And it is our joy and privilege to come to God, maker of the universe and supreme Lord of all nations, not only as the God above all gods, but also as our Father who art in heaven. The whole world, in seeing his creation, understands God's fatherhood in a limited way. He is the originator of all that exists. Everything that exists, he created by his word out of nothing. He is the sustainer of all that exists, providing for all his creation. Large parts of the world see God's fatherhood in a less limited way, having access not just to creation, but to the word of God, and sitting under the preaching of that word. And there we learn that God gives us his law, that he delegates his authority for the establishment of his law, that he disciplines lawbreakers, that he watches over his creation tenderly, noting even when a sparrow falls, that he will judge all men, that he has fatherly perfections and attributes, that he provides for us, that he gives us his gospel and calls to us to come to him. He tells us of his coming judgment and he has revealed himself to us as father because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so I end by asking you, is your faith a biblical faith? Do you believe in what scripture teaches about the nature of manhood and womanhood? Do you think that you can... Reject what Scripture says about human relations and language about human beings and keep the language about God that's in Scripture. When you worship God, do you worship Him as an adopted son or an adopted child? When you speak to God, do you speak to Him as Father?
You know, last night, Mary Lee asked me if I'd called somebody in this church who had suffered a blow this last week in a hope that was put off by God. And Mary Lee, I, I told her that, no, I had neglected to make the phone call to encourage this person. And Mary Lee's response was to say to me, well, you realize that this will just confirm in them the conviction that God hates them. This blow that they suffered. And what is my answer for that? My answer is not to go and give them a hug and tell them I love them, although I will try to do that. But my answer is to say to them that since they have placed their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, they have been adopted as a son of God. And as a son of God, all of creation and all of the universe is their inheritance. And they have a glorious position. And if they are going to judge the compassion and the loving kindness and the tenderness and the faithfulness of God on the basis of this one suffering in this life, they're foolish. Because God has warned us that we would have many trials and tribulations in this life. And the real problem is that they do not know the character of God. Because God, as a father, disciplines those that he loves. And I would encourage you, if you struggle with calling God Father, I think what you really struggle with is trusting that when he disciplines you and doesn't give you what you want, and when he breaks your pride, and when he forces you to submit to the preaching of a fool with jars of clay, me, and when he puts you under elders who can say yes and no and do and don't, And when he gives you children who look to you for provision and discipline, and when he gives you a wife, that that he, through every single one of these things, is blessing you and is treating you as a son, is preparing you for his, his glorious heaven. And you have two choices. Your choice is either to remake this, this earth in your image, giving it all of the characteristics and attributes that you think you should have, and to defy his fatherhood, to defy his discipline, which is his love. Or you have the opportunity of being born again into the fatherhood of God, being an adopted son of God, and joyfully jumping into every bit of suffering and every disappointment and every fear and insecurity that he gives you, knowing that this is his perfect plan for his adopted son. And all of that is in this issue of whether you will say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Whether you will pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Whether you will say, Abba, Father. It all goes back to pride and faith and unbelief and trust. And I don't ask you to have trust in me. I don't ask you to have trust in the elders. I ask you to to believe in God the Father. Let's pray. And those of you.